Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you so much for joining me on this, our third and final episode from the book of 2 Peter. So we've explored two themes thus far in the book of 2 Peter. We looked at the danger of false teachers, how we could recognize them by their skepticism and their ungodly living. We've looked at the need for believers to practice godly living, to not just say no to sin, but to say yes to living out the righteousness of Christ. And so our third and final theme is, like I said at the end of our last episode, perhaps the primary reason this book was written in the first place. Remember, this book Peter is aware that he's going to die. He is aware that the the first generation of believers, the the apostles who followed Jesus, who saw him alive after the dead, he is aware that they are dying off. And so Peter needed to answer the problem of the delay of Christ's return. Now, since the days of Christ, the early Christians had been preaching and believing as if believers should be living as if Christ could come back at any moment. And they get this from the Lord Jesus himself in Mark 115, Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And during the last week of Jesus' life, when Jesus is both speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, but also just speaking of his second coming, and just to be honest, it's kind of difficult sometimes to know which one he's talking about. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In a letter to 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. And Paul goes on to teach about what it will be like when Jesus comes back. And so believers, rightly so, read this and thought like, oh my gosh, the Lord Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, that's still true today. But understand that if you are bent towards skepticism, if someone tells you every single day, you know, Jesus might come back today and every day he doesn't and a week goes by, a month, a year, a decade, and now we're 30 years past the resurrection and ascension of Christ, you can understand that there is a great deal of skepticism and just outright mockery of Christians telling Christians that they have been deceived. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4 says this, Know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They, scoffers, will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So this is what people are saying to early Christians, laughing at them for their childish foolish belief. Kind of like we might laugh at someone who in their 40s still believes in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, right? They're laughing at the fact that you believe some guy's going to come out of the sky on a horse with a sword. You guys are crazy. You've been duped. Now, this unfulfilled expectation, like we said, as this first generation of believers is dying off, is becoming a major problem. And so Peter reminds the believers in Asia Minor of some very important truths. And the first is this, God could end this world just as easily as he had created it. So Peter, answering these skeptics, says in 2 Peter 3, 5-7, For they, skeptics, scoffers, they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter is here saying, here's what skeptics are forgetting. One, the only reason anything exists is because God spoke it into being. 
You don't think that God can come back and judge the world? Two, they are deliberately overlooking the fact that God already came in judgment against this world in the flood of Noah. And God's going to do it again, but this time, this final time, it's going to be fire, not water. So one, the first truth they're not, they're forgetting is that God could end this world just as easily as he created it. The second truth Peter reminds believers of is that God is not limited by human timetables. Friends, God's not stuck in traffic. He's not rushed. He's not stressed. He's not worried what people are thinking about him. No, 2 Peter 3.8 says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God's timing is perfect. And his weight, Peter says, and this is our third truth, was due to mercy. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here it is. Here's the reason, the reason why Christ has not returned yet. It's not because he forgot or he overslept or he's busy or he's unable to keep his promises. No, no, it's not slowness or laziness. It's patience. He doesn't want to have to come and destroy unbelievers. He's giving them time to repent. He's giving his church time to get the gospel to all nations. He is waiting, but his patience will end and judgment is going to come. 2 Peter 3, 7 and 10 through 12, Peter says, By that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now God is not gonna come back and destroy this world down to its you know, last atom and throw it into the trash. No, God's going to create something new out of this corrupt world. Sin doesn't get the last word. If God had to destroy this creation and start again, sin would have in some ways won. Sin doesn't get to win. God's going to create something new out of this corrupt world. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, Peter doesn't give a sign. He doesn't say, look for this or watch out for that. He simply stresses the unexpected nature of Jesus' return. He says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, I know that's kind of odd for us to think about describing Jesus' return in a, by means of a description of a sinful activity like, like a robber. But he's simply saying, echoing Jesus here, I'll read to you from Matthew 24, 43. Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. The very nature of thieves and robbers is that they don't tell you when they're going to come to your house. That defeats the whole purpose. So Jesus has not told us exactly when he's going to come back. He simply said, I'm going to come back. And he told his disciples, people will be surprised. They will be caught off guard. And so Peter has a deep and unshakable confidence that God is going to return at just the right time and deal with evil and vindicate his children. And Peter's confidence come from his trust in God's promises. You can see over and over again, Peter pointing back to the, the fact that God is faithful. 
2 Peter 1.4, for example, it says that he, God, has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Oh, friends, I wish we could spend a lot of time on that one verse. But I think just to give you a taste, I think the precious and very great promise that Peter is thinking of is the promise of Christ's return. Because if I believe that Jesus is going to come back, and if I believe he will come back to judge the world and judge me for every thought and every word, what kind of person do you think I'm going to be? What kind of motivation would that give me to live a life of righteousness instead of a life of sin? This is the precious and very great promises. And Peter knew the promises were true because of his time with Jesus. In 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, Peter says, For we, the apostles, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter says, we didn't make this up. And what we tell you, we didn't hear from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody who had a cousin who saw something. No, no, we we were eyewitnesses. The, the man writing this letter, Peter, he was an eyewitness of his majesty. He's here speaking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter says, for when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, he, Peter heard the Father speak, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Remember the Mount Transfiguration. I'm going to read it to you from Mark 9, 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So friends, Peter, James, and John, the disciples, they saw, forget about the resurrection for a moment, they saw just heaven peeled back and they saw the glory of Jesus. And they realized in that moment, everything God had been saying in the Old Testament, everything that God had been saying through his son Jesus was true. And that includes the return of Christ. All the prophecies of scripture, Peter says, can be trusted because they are ultimately from God himself. So when you read Peter or Paul or James or John, or when you read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Deuteronomy or Psalms or Job, when you read anything in the Bible, you are not ultimately reading the words of men. You're reading the words of God. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 20. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy or scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And Peter goes on to say that prophets speak as they are carried along by the Spirit of God. So friends, the significance of this is when you read through the Old Testament, for example, and you read Isaiah 65, 17, how, how God's going to make all things new and, and create a new heavens and a new earth. You're not banking on Isaiah being right. You're banking on God being faithful. And he's always faithful. And so Peter says Christians living back during his day and in our day, and if the Lord should tarry for a thousand years, a thousand years from now, they need to follow the example of Noah and Lot. Now, Noah and Lot are certainly not perfect. We could point to some things that they did we sh that we should not do. But one thing they both did is they avoided disaster by remembering the promises of God. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 5 through 7, he says, if, if he, God, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, 
Yet by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So Peter is saying those men believed the promises of God about judgment and they responded appropriately. And we must do the same thing. Now, when Peter talks about the return of Christ, he's stepping into a stream of teaching in the Bible about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is connected to the idea of God as a warrior. God is a warrior. It's part of his nature. He is a warrior. The only question is, who is he fighting against? Because what we see in scripture, multiple places, is that when God's people obey him, he fights for them. Think about in the the, the Red Sea, when the people are panicking because they're trapped against the water, and here comes the Egyptian army, and Moses just tells them, stand still, the Lord fights for you today. And they obey, and he fights them and destroys the mighty Egyptian army. But when God's people disobey him, he fights against them. In the book of Jeremiah, God's people have been disobeying him for centuries, and they're crying out, for the Lord to show up and rescue them. And God says through Jeremiah, oh, I'm going to show up, but I'm showing up with the Babylonian army and I'm leading the fight against you. Now, strictly speaking, the day of the Lord refers to God's judgment and defeat of his adversaries and his rescue of his people. And so again, the question comes down, when God arrives, will he be showing up to fight for his people or to fight against his people? And so Peter is warning us, live according to the commands of Scripture, so that when the Lord returns, you have nothing to fear, but you can rejoice as one being rescued from the lion's den. And Peter says that when when the second coming of Christ happens, the old cosmos, the old universe, the old world order will come under God's judgment. It will burn it away, and from the ashes, a new order will emerge. 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's like God peeling back all the layers of deception that we have been trying to hide under and revealing us for who we are. In that day, that awesome day, and I mean that in the literal sense, a day of awe, a day of fear and dread for unbelievers, because unbelievers are going to bear God's wrath. But it's a day of awe and wonder and rejoicing for believers, as we will be vindicated because of our trust in Christ, and we will enjoy a renewed physical existence. Now, one last thing to point out, and I think this is very significant. Throughout the Old Testament, when the prophets speak about the day of the Lord, that's what they call it, the day of the Lord. But in the New Testament, the verbiage switches from the day of the Lord to the day of the Lord Jesus. For example, 2 Corinthians 1.14, Paul says that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So on judgment day, it's no longer the day of the Lord. Well, to put it a better way, the day of the Lord is the day of Jesus. Jesus is God. And so that's why Jesus says himself in Matthew 24, 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is the day of the Lord. And this is the day that God is holding back from in patience and mercy so that all can know and hear. So friends, as we close this episode, as we close this theme, as we close this book, the call for us is to do two things. One, examine ourselves. Are we living as if we truly believe that Christ could come back at any moment? And two, examine our gospel witness. All of us, I'm sure, 
have friends, neighbors, coworkers, teammates who don't know Christ. And we know they don't know Christ. Do we really believe that Jesus could come back at any moment and that he will bring down unspeakable wrath on those who have rejected him? There are, as I'm recording this, three billion people on the planet who've never heard the gospel. And if Christ were to return today, all of those people would stand condemned and damned for all of eternity. Do we believe that? And if we did, what will we be doing that we're not doing? What will we stop doing that we are doing? So for all of us, friends, myself included, let's examine ourselves and ask God to reveal the areas of our life that don't line up with our confession. So friends, the next time we come back together, we'll begin an examination of the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But until then, take up and read, my friends. God bless. 